this is Greg Lois. I'm standing here today with Tim Kane, uh, one of my colleagues here at Lois LLC. And if you're with us today, you're here to learn about evaluating claims for permanency exposure. Uh, this is our second attempt at this today. We had some technical difficulties uh, in the noon session, so we're hoping that the three o'clock session works a little bit better. Uh, the question we're here to answer today uh, is what you do and sort of uh, answer the question that you're getting from your location, your insureds, your clients, which is basically, what's the exposure posed by this claim? Um, I'm Greg Lois. This is Tim Kane. Uh, Tim's a former claimants attorney, uh, worked as a claimants attorney representing claimants before the board for how long? Just short of three years. And uh, so today we're hoping that we'll give a little bit of that inside scoop, maybe from the claimants perspective a little bit as we talk about valuing claims. Um, hopefully you can hear the audio. I'm getting the thumbs up from Lauren so we know that it's coming through right now. Um, if you can't uh, remember uh, in the instructions that we sent you today, there is dial-in options if it's not coming through your computer. This is a part of our overall webinar series. Today's the third Monday of the month. Uh, so we're talking about New York. Please remember that fourth Monday of the month is always our New Jersey. This is part of our overall webinar series. If you want to know uh, what the curriculum is or the events that are coming up, check out our website. Uh, we do a lot of outreach, or we try to do a lot of outreach here and a lot of education. Uh, handbooks will be coming out in December. That'll be our 2016 handbook. Uh, there's a lot of stuff on our website, uh, lois-llc.com. Every article we've written, over 900 articles in nine years. Um, and our monthly webinar series, of course, that you're tuning into right now. So we try to do a lot of outreach and education. Uh, today, we're going to do a quick 15-minute overview. Remember, this is live, so you can ask questions. Uh, type your questions in. We can't hear you. You're muted. So if you give us a question, uh, we'll read it out loud to the group, and we'll try to respond to it. I already had one uh, question emailed to me, uh, so we'll talk about that maybe at the end. Um, thanks, Brigida. Okay, um, Tim, take okay. it away. So the question of the day is exposure on permanency. I am going to talk about probably the simpler of the two types of permanency claims, which would be a scheduled loss of use. So where do we get our uh, information on how to evaluate for permanency? We look to the guidelines for determining permanent impairment and loss of wage earning capacity, which is promulgated by the board. Uh, so as I just mentioned, there are two types, scheduled loss of use and loss of wage earning capacity. I'm going to cover scheduled loss of use to start. Schedule loss of use applies to the extremities. So, uh, Hands, feet, fingers, toes, legs, arms, uh, also the eyes, loss of vision. Uh, what is schedule loss of use? Well, the board promulgates a schedule uh, with values assigned to each of those extremities in terms of a number of weeks of compensation. So, for example, just to use the first one, a hand is, quote-unquote, worth 244 weeks. Now, as a claimant side attorney, I used to always explain this to claimants. They would often get upset about the fact that a specific value was placed on their body part or their loss of use. And not to mention, it was usually less than the full value because they usually didn't lose that body part or that member. So while it isn't probably a objectively accurate value for that body part, that's the, the value that the board assigns, and that's what we're working with. So yeah, we're stuck with what the legislature gives us, and it's very offensive when you think about it, that somebody with an ouchie sprained my back could get 300 weeks, right. no surgery, you know, for a loss of wage earning capacity. Someone could lose an arm and get 244, sorry. So, uh, but meanwhile, you could cut somebody's arm off, and they would get less weeks than just a sort of vague, sort of subjective back complaint. It doesn't seem fair. It does feel like we under 
value hands, finger, feet, and toes, and we overvalue what I'm going to talk about, which is the loss of wage earning capacity, body sites, the back, uh, the neck, the thoracic spine, and psychiatric. So this table or something similar to it is in the permanency guidelines. It gives you a helpful idea of how much, um, you know, each percentage of each of those uh, values is. Um, and where do the doctors get this information? How do they determine the percentage of loss of use? Well, there are factors in the guidelines. Uh, probably the most common one that we're looking at is loss of range of motion. Uh, obviously, for partial amputation, there are specific guidelines. For full amputation, you'd get the full value, but largely what we're looking at is a uh, loss of range of motion, uh, which is all covered for each body part in the guidelines. The way it works in terms of formulating the exposure is you take the two-thirds value of the average weekly wage, or the TT rate, multiply that by the number of weeks, which is the percentage of, of the schedule loss use value for that particular body part, and you end with a gross number. The carrier can then subtract the carrier credit, which is the number of, well, the amount of indemnity paid to date, and you end up with a, a net value. Um, how do they figure out the doctors, the treating physicians, the IMEs, figure out the loss of range of motion, they use a goniometer, which is that device right there. Well, hopefully they use it. Hopefully. Greg uh, detailed in the earlier stab at trying to do this how some doctors will just eyeball it. They've been doing it for a long time, and that's something that you can try and uh, discuss with them on cross-examination and try and get some concessions there. Sure. Sure. I mean, how many times have we had a claimant's uh, physician say, well, how did, you know, the loss of range of uh, motion is uh, so many degrees, and they're using that to come up with their scheduled loss of use percentage. And you say, well, how did you measure that doctor? And the doctor says something like, well, I've done this for 22 years, and I just know uh, this was the range that was missing. Hmm. No, I'd prefer, or I, I was, would hope the doctor's using a, a medical device that's actually going to measure that angle for us. And I think it's fertile ground on that cross-examination, something we can go after. Right. Ideally, the IME and the claimant's uh, physician would have similar numbers. It's supposed to be objective, but it doesn't always happen. This is why we have to litigate these kinds of things. You know, one doctor will say 10%, the other doctor will say 40%, and so we have to get them on the record to discuss these things. But as you can see from the uh, images here, you can pretty much apply a goniometer to uh, range of motion for a number of different body sites, um, and that is the standard. Uh, so when one side, well, when a carrier uh, or a carrier's attorney shows up to court with a permanency report, the judge will direct the claimant to get a C4.3. Or if the claimant shows up with a permanency report, it will be on a form C4.3. Uh, this is as opposed to the normal C4.2 that they um, file for uh, when the claimant has not reached maximum medical improvement. But when one doctor, when the IME doctor says that the claimant has re reached maximum medical improvement, the, the judge will direct the treating physician to file a C4.3. The first question that really that we need to have answered is whether the claimant has reached maximum medical improvement. Is there permanent impairment? <clears throat> if the claimant's treating physician says no to that question, which is section E here on the C4.3, then we have to litigate that question. Right, and it's like a unicorn. How many treating physicians actually ever say, uh, 
you know, someone has actually reached maximum benefit of care. I mean, voluntarily releasing these patients in New York, it seems to me, the physicians will just keep treating somebody literally until they die. I've never, they never really release them. So it is quite frequent that we have to litigate this issue of maximum medical improvement. Have they reached that medical plateau yet? Um, so, but for the purpose of today's discussion, we're just presuming that that MMI has been reached or, or person, compromised. Right. Let's say the person has returned to work. They just want to get their schedule loss of use award, whatever the case may be. So the doctor will check yes. Then the doctor will list off the body parts. It could be just one, as in this example, right knee. It could be multiple schedulable sites, right knee, left elbow, whatever. Um, it's interesting to note that this could also apply to someone with a neck and back uh, case if that person doesn't have any further disability to the, to the neck and back, if they want to just get their schedule award and end their case, essentially. Um, but normally, this would a schedule loss use would apply to a case that's uh, constrained just to schedulable sites. So the doctor will put a percentage on the C4.3 and attempt to support that with the relevant diagnostic test results. Uh, these are all things that we potentially could be litigating. Um, once the parties agree or the judge determines or every now and then the two doctors will actually agree so there's no need to litigate once the percentage is agreed upon that percentage will be applied to the full value of that extremity and you'll get a number of weeks and then we'll do that calculation we discussed earlier where the temp total rate is multiplied by that number of weeks minus the indemnity to date and in most cases you'll end up with the value of the schedule loss you use however if the claimant received the temporary total rate for more than a certain number of weeks for each body part, there's the possibility of an additional award for protracted healing period. So for example, if you look at the table that's on your screen right now, an arm, the board has determined that 32 weeks is the healing period for an arm. So if someone is totally temporarily disabled for more than 32 weeks with an arm injury, it's possible they could get additional weeks of benefits as a protracted healing period award. Um, so just for example, if someone is at the temp total rate for 33 weeks, they would be entitled to one week of a protracted healing period award. And this is something that when we do these exposure analyses, this is something we have to take into account all the time. Right, and you just, we're calling it protracted healing period, but the lingo in court is PHP, Correct. right? So you'll sometimes hear that and some of the other lingo that you threw out just now, uh, you were talking about TT rate, and right. that would be the temporary total disability rate. Correct. Okay, so just to keep the lingo straight. So someone could be out of work for uh, a great period of time, and protracted healing period might not come into play as long as that person isn't receiving the temporary total rate. So, you know, when someone is injured with an injury to the arm or the leg, for example, and they're getting the temporary total rate as the, you know, for the first bunch of weeks, one of the first things that we normally recommend is that the carrier get an IME which would presumably uh, come back at less than a total disability, and we can get into court and get the person off the TT rate and reduce the risk of a PHP award. Yeah, and that's something that your defense counsel should figure out for you, right? I mean, we're generally telling clients, hey, there's PHP that could apply in this case, or maybe not, and sometimes strategically during the case, we're just trying to get the number down below temporary total just to avoid the potential for PHP or protracted healing period payments. Right. So that's something counsel will do now. Um, when you sort of introduced your topic of scheduled loss of use, you said, hey, these are the easier ones. And the answer, the reason I think you said that is because, you know, they're generally very easy to price and figure out the exposures. Uh, their doctor says something, our doctor says something, 
you know, the, the, the judges typically try to push us towards the middle, um, but you are getting a percentage on that C-4.3 form that you can sort of hang your hat on and say, well, the worst case is what their doctor has, the best case is what our doctor has, and they're easier for us to price from an exposure standpoint. Right. And if you're interested in, you know, one thing to keep in mind with schedule loss of use is that the case stays open in the event that the person's injury worsens in the future. Their doctor can prove can attempt to prove a worsening. Um, so sometimes adjusters ask us to evaluate a case for full Section 32 closures. So we would normally do the schedule loss of use evaluation and then try and figure out what the cost of future medical uh, treatment might be. Um, you know, usually we would give that in a range, but we, that is, it's possible to, to, to attempt to figure out how to close a schedulable case as a Section 32. Uh, it's just another step on the analysis. Um, and that is a very brief and general description of schedule loss of use. All right, let me take away loss of wage earning capacity here. Loss of wage earning capacity is everything that's not really covered under the schedule loss of use chart. So you've got hands, finger, feet, toes, and eyes. I've got uh, the low back, cervical, thoracic, psychiatric, pulmonary, anything that doesn't fit neatly into our chart uh, and that has an impact on wage earning capacity. Uh, there was a compromise in 2007, and now there is a cap on the number of weeks. Uh, the other side of the compromise is uh, it used to be you could have a temporary, I'm sorry, a permanent partial disability forever, right? So you, those payments would go on uh, until you die. Now there's a cap. There's a limit on the number of weeks that someone can recover a permanent partial disability benefit. Uh, but the rates have all bumped up. And in fact, the rates are just about double where they were in 2007 before the reform legislation. So it's been the impact on actual exposure probably hasn't diminished it, but that's a discussion for another day. Very simplified, loss of wage earning capacity is simply a rate times a number of capped weeks, and then you come up with the exposure. Of course, the cost of medical has to be factored into as well. I'm not going to get into that or how that's priced today, but that's basically how it's figured out. Now, there is a formal litigation process to determine a loss of wage earning capacity. And again, we're talking about primarily low backs, thoracics, cervical spines. Those are typically the ones that we're litigating. In my experience, it's mainly the low backs that are the problem because they're so subjective, they're so vague, <clears throat> especially in the non-surgical context. It's just somebody who's saying, my back aches, I got a positive MRI finding, uh, I'm claiming I have a radiculopathy. Uh, to me, not very impressive medical cases, but they do have a high exposure value. So uh, here's the litigation process for a loss of wage earning capacity case. First, we're going to make the presumption today for the purpose of this discussion, just as we did for the SLU, that the person has reached maximum medical improvement. All right, next, uh, the first step really for the judge to consider is both sides have impairment ratings. Typically, uh, we'll have our impairment rating first, and the judge will order the claimant to go get their impairment rating. And then the judge is supposed to consider functional ability and vocation to come up with an overall percentage of loss of wage earning capacity. Let's talk about how that's done. Um, first, both sides have impairment ratings. The impairment ratings are also controlled by the disability duration guidelines that uh, Tim was talking about. And they have these crazy formulas for how we figure out uh, what everything is worth in ranking disability by severity. Well, typically, in our practice, we keep seeing the same disability rankings all over the place. Uh, 11.1, 11.2, 11.3, 11.4, those are the low back, cervical spine injuries with radiculopathy, and then a severity ranking from the, ju from the 
physician. And these go on to our form C-4.3. They just go in a different section. Uh, they're uh, in the middle of the form under Section B for non-schedule losses. And what we typically see, and we see this all the time over and over again, uh, our physician says the person, and this is like the typical low back uh, case, uh, has an 11.4A right, which is like the minimum uh, finding they can find, and it equates to about a 15 or 16 percent loss of wage earning capacity. You convert it to, to numbers using the severity crosswalk, which is on page 120 of the Disability Duration Guidelines, and claim its physician typically has an 11.4J, which is as high as they can go. It's the most disability they can find, and that equates to about a 75% permanent partial disability. So those will be on these forms, and now we're off to the races to litigate that. Of course, we'll cross-examine their doctor. They can cross-examine ours about how they reach those findings. More difficult is functional ability. The judge is supposed to consider functional ability and vocation in coming up with the duration of this award and the, and the length of time this award uh, is paid. So what is functional ability? Well, the, once again, the board loves forms. They've created a, a, a third page to the form C-4.3. And in that form, uh, the claimant's physician and the IME doctor are supposed to provide a full functional assessment of the claimant. But what is this? This is basically the claimant giving them their complaints and saying what they can and cannot do. Right. Um, so, you know, we typically see the claimant's physicians saying they have uh, a high degree of restriction in their activities of daily living and they can't do, they can't lift, they can't walk. Our physicians usually giving a, a less paternalistic view of what they're able to do. Uh, this is one of those situations where I like to, like, go back into the file and find that surveillance that we made uh, during the case. By the way, we love surveillance. And sometimes we get surveillance or most of the time when we get surveillance, it's it frankly stinks. Right. It doesn't show a beautiful per se fraud or the person working or water skiing. Uh, but we do have surveillance that shows them going about their activities of daily living. You know, they're driving. Right. They're going to um, they're going to the beer st liquor store. They're buying lottery tickets. You know, they're just living out their normal life. I mean, it seems like every single um, surveillance video I see, they go to the dollar store in the morning. You know, they pick up their kids from work and the kids from school, that kind of thing. They're doing their normal day. And so this is an instance where maybe these videos didn't show fraud, but maybe Maybe they do go to function. Maybe they're, they're useful for that. Um, the other conversation we have a lot with clients is, can we force them to attend a functional capacity evaluation? In most states, a functional capacity evaluation is a big part of determining permanency. Uh, the answer is in New York, you can. You can demand, uh, you can ask your IME doctor, hey, doc, would it help you in assessing functional ability to have a functional capacity evaluation? And then if your IME physician says yes, you can then force them to attend the functional capacity evaluation. Now, as someone who's uh, represented claimants for most of your legal career, right. uh, how did you feel about your claimants going to functional capacity evaluations? Uh, well, we certainly wouldn't uh, encourage it uh, actively uh, if a judge directed it. With some, like some of the other things, you know, you wait for a judge to, to direct it. Right. So. I generally see a lack of cooperation with functional capacity evaluations. Some of our adversaries say, oh, those are lie detector tests. You're just trying to trick my claimant. Okay, I get it. You don't want there to be another objective sort of statement of what this person can and cannot do. So we get it. They don't like them, but this is something, a tool that we do have in the toolbox. All right, last uh, thing that the judge should consider is vocational abilities. And this is a little bit... Um, Let's just put it the word hilarious because uh, the judges are not really well equipped uh, to evaluate vocation with the tools they currently have. And the guidelines, the disability duration guidelines, don't really give 
great advice about what they're supposed to be doing. So what we're doing is we're doing labor market surveys. We're hiring consultants to try to find some reemployability for these claimants. Um, but what, what we see from the claimants is all of a sudden everybody has a learning disability, didn't finish high school, has no transferable skills. Uh, you know, they're unemployable, right? right? And I mean, tell me about that when you were prepping claimants or hypothetically, right? Let's talk about this factor. So I think it's interesting. It was always a weird thing when I would prepare for a loss of wage earning capacity hearing with a claimant because I sort of had to explain to them that I'm about to do my very best to make them look as, as bad as possible. <laughs> right. Uh, not only medically impaired, but also utterly incapable of holding any sort of job. Um, and ironically, one of the more difficult conversations to have was when I had a claimant who had a high degree of education or who was well-spoken, um, could read and write in English, who had uh, a lot of great experience on their resume, because even though they might have a very significant uh, injury, the fact that they had those vocational factors in their favor would actually hurt them in the loss of wage earning capacity hearing versus someone who maybe had less severe of a, of a bodily injury, but who didn't have the ability to speak English or write in English, ability to um, do a sedentary job because they don't know how to use a computer or because they can't speak English, those types of people will actually have more of a quote-unquote advantage in mm -hmm. a loss of wage earning capacity hearing. So it was a strange conversation to have as a claimant side attorney. It was a strange argument to try to make. Um, but nonetheless, judges were generally pretty receptive to it. Um, so, you know, you have to try it and Got to do what you got to do. You're you have to try and find, you know, the, the, the holes. You can, for example, one thing that, uh, you know, we've discussed is that sometimes a claimant will say they can't speak English. Sure. And I mean, oh, typically. I mean, we're there with a translator, right. and they're saying all I can do is physical labor <clears throat> because this is, I don't have any language skills. I'm illiterate in English, right? Right. But sometimes you'll ask a question, and at a hearing, the question is supposed to go through the translator to the claimant in their native language and they answer in the native language and then back translate it back into English. Sometimes they'll just answer straight away and you can turn to the judge and say, look, they do speak English. Things like that. Yeah, because they're answering be before the translator has even finished translating the question to them. Right. I mean, yeah, right. And, and that's, that's a slam dunk if you're sitting there on the defense side. Like, hey, judge, look, they're not even waiting. They don't, they're answering before they know. So that's something we can observe. Um, we can prepare for these hearings in a couple different ways. I think the best way is to get their, their job application if we can find it. You know, what did they put on their resume? Um, can we confirm their education? Uh, are they still um, getting things like hunting licenses and fishing licenses? Are they still active? New York uh, now puts your hunting and fishing license uh, status on your driver's license, which means if the claimant's there at the hearing, we could say, hey, I want to see your license. And you'll say, well, well, this is interesting. You just had your license renewed, and you still have a hunting license and a fishing license and a boating license. Why do you have all those licenses if you can't do anything? And that's a question for them to answer, right? right. Uh, the other thing is everyone puts themselves under self-surveillance nowadays uh, with Facebook and Instagram and all these other things that people are posting to. It's one thing to say, I can't speak English and I'm uneducated, but if you can sit at social media all day, and a lot of these claimants are sitting home all day fooling around on social media, hey, I think you could do a sedentary job. I think that challenges those arguments about reemployability. Right. All right, so... There's a lot of pieces that go into the loss of wage earning capacity uh, litigation or that we're going to consider when we're coming up with an exposure analysis. And sometimes we're not going to know all of these factors, but we're going to take them into consideration to the best we can, especially in these uh, functional vocational ones. Um, 
Again, here's sort of more of a simplified view of this. It's really three parts that should go into that loss of wage earning capacity. Overall valuation. Uh, the most recent decision on this case is actually the Baxic versus Good Samaritan case. That's our case. It's a case that we argued and took up to the appellate division. And in that case, the uh, appellate division said that the uh, medical impairment determines the actual rate, and there will be a percentage found by the judge. But the duration of benefits will be controlled by, can be uh, controlled by or changed by or amended to address the person's functional and vocational abilities. So we're going to take all of that into consideration when we're coming up with an exposure analysis where we think there's going to be a loss of wage earning capacity uh, consideration to make. All right, so let's give you some practical advice for working with us or working with any defense counsel. Uh, you want to have the best possible exposure analysis done. I find that the most important thing is the more information, right? The more we know about the claimant, the better we can give you advice about the overall exposures. Particularly when a lot of the judges, and this is from experience, don't look at a severity ranking of B or C or D and just know what that means. Right. You know, they want the attorneys to ask the doctors during cross-examination to give a percentage because they want something to kind of base their finding on that's not these amorphous, you know, uh, severity rankings, which a lot of them really don't care to learn about. They don't want to go through the, the, the permanency guidelines. They want a doctor to say 50%, 75%, and they want to have a number like that and then take the LWEC testimony and tack a little more on. So, you know, they don't necessarily have uh, any better grasp of these guidelines than, let's say, um, you know, the claimant or anyone else. They, I don't want to say just pull a number out of thin air. but Well, I think that know, a lot of us, and I don't think, um, I mean, we try to be as scientific as we can applying these guidelines, but let's be frank. There were old rules of thumb, you know, six years, seven years, eight years that we would used to apply when we would value cases. And I still think a lot of that's going on where, you know, the default I, I found in my LWEC uh, defenses have been the judges have tried to pretty much come out at around 50%. It's rare to see an LWEC that comes out less than 50%. And again, I'm talking about the classic ones that we're litigating all the time, which is a 4J versus a 4A or a 4B. You know, these are... 75 versus a 15, and they, they just seem to come out at about 300 weeks or at about a 600, a six-year valuation, which was sort of a rule of thumb that had been around for a long time. Yeah. So you want to really be heads up for people who, you know, like we said earlier, people who will answer in English before the translation comes through, um, or, for example, people who actually take a lot of pride in their education and their experience. You know, there are those people out there, and they'll be happy to talk about it, um, and that's great for them in life generally, but it will help you um, not only reduce the amount of lost wage earning capacity, you can actually bring the uh, LWEC below the, the degree of medical impairment. So, you know. And that would affect the duration of weeks. Okay. So just a reminder, we can take questions. I'm looking right now at the computer. Let's see if there's any. Okay. I see a question. Oh, someone just saying thanks. Another person saying thanks. Well, we did get a question um, from Brigida, who sent it over email. And you're welcome to email us in questions ahead of the webinar if you want. Uh, I sent out the handouts this morning, and someone responded with, hey, could you address this? And the question that we got from Brigida this morning uh, was basically, hey, Greg, we send people for uh, IMEs, and we say we want you to do a scheduled loss of use IME. 
And they come back and they give us an LWEC percentage where they do an LWEC analysis on top of the scheduled loss of use. Um, and the question is basically, should we be doing that? What, what would be the pluses and minuses of doing it? Have you seen that where we've sent somebody for a SLU um, IME, and that would be a scheduled loss of use, on a specific body part, arm, leg, knee, and the doctor makes a comment on another body part like the low back or the neck and gives an actual LWEC percentage? Sure, sure. Uh, I've seen it happen. I think there's a few different situations that, you know, that might apply to. One is where the person does have an established a neck or back claim, but they actually came to court with a C4.3 with a schedule loss use finding, and so we're looking for one as well, but the doctor sees that the neck and back is on there, so they do both. Uh, in that case where the person actually wants to close their case on a schedule loss of use, you probably just look at the schedule loss of use that's on there. Um, another situation is the doctor might just be confused. Um, <laughs> right. You know, another situation is that Sometimes a schedulable injury, arguably, if the schedule loss use is high enough, becomes a classifiable condition. So, you know, I'm not exactly sure by the question whether we're talking about classification based on the neck and back or classification based on the fact that the schedule loss use is so right. big that it actually becomes a classifiable condition, which Let's is stop there. Let's talk about that just for a second. So under Section 15.3V of the statute, if your scheduled body part has a residual disability over 50%, the claimant can argue, uh, this actually impairs my wage earning ability, and this should not be priced as a scheduled loss of use, uh, that, that, that sort of one-time payment. Instead, uh, they're going to argue, hey, this is affecting my ability to earn a living, and I want to have an award based on all of that. Right. That's something they have to actually affirmatively prove, though. It's not just a guarantee that they're going to be found to have a classifiable condition. They have to come in and show uh, that injury to an extremity is actually affecting their ability to, to hold on a job. Right. The burden's on the claimant in that situation. Okay, now we got some more questions. With the expedited uh, process regarding permanency, how does that affect our ability to verify LWEC, getting, for example, an IME, a functional capacity evaluation, conducting a labor market assessment, et cetera? All right, so let's talk about that. Does having a short period of time to put the whole case in affect our ability to uh, to uh, to uh, address the case in full, present full defenses, do an investigation, uh, and absolutely uh, defend the case as thoroughly and vigorously as needed? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I hate the expedited hearing calendars. I hate any time we're, we're put under a limitation. Um, you know, one of the things that we do in every expedited case is we try to get it off the expedited calendar uh, desperately. I mean, it's in every single pre-hearing conference statement I've ever filed, trying to get something off that calendar. Yeah, well, I think it's important, and this is obviously, you know, probably pretty obvious, but there's the expedited calendar at the start of the case, but then at the end of the case, it's actually the judges who seem to be under this great pressure. Yeah, 60 be, days, know. let's get this thing in. Right, once one doctor says permanency, MMI, the judge is under this incredible pressure, seemingly, to complete the permanency uh, determination and, and come up with an LWEC finding. So, you know, you have to be very careful the big risk here is getting precluded. If a judge gives you a date to come back with a permanency IME, you better have it, regardless of whether, you know, the doctor says this isn't permanent or it is permanent, but show up for the hearing with the uh, information that you need. Um, I guess it's obvious that, you know, if you're working in a constrained timeline, it's a little harder to maybe get surveillance, but right. you have to work within those uh, time periods. Right, and that also can come down to how well we prep the doctor for that IMA. Did we send them the surveillance at the time, even if it right. wasn't per se fraud surveillance? You know, did we have their job application? What do we know? Um, so yeah, that it is. Those are uh, challenging circumstances. All right, what's the next? Got a bunch here. 
when is appropriate time to request the treating physician and or IME doctor provide an opinion on MMI? Well, gosh, I, anytime. I would love them to provide us opinions on MMI every single time they see the claimant. But guess what? Uh, you're never going to voluntarily see claimant's physicians releasing care. I mean, it's so, it's like a unicorn. It's so rare that in a case when that happens, I think to myself, oh, the claimant must have gone to them and said, I want to go back to work. Let, stop. Enough already. I'm not coming here for any more physical therapy. I'm, I'm done. Right? right. I mean, the, the prejudice or the bias for the physician seems to be just keep treating, 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 treating. Right. But in terms of when a judge is going to even allow that evidence in, for example, if the person has surgery, let's say the injury was in 2008 or 2009, if the person just had surgery, the judge isn't going to want to see a permanency report for the rule of thumb is a year right. after the date of surgery. Uh, they're not going to see, they're not going to want to see a maximum medical improvement report or permanency report, you know, within the first two or three months after the original date of injury. Um, basically, you want to give it enough time where you can actually make the argument to the judge, like this person has treated, they're not getting any better. So you kind of have to follow those rules of thumb and make sure you're not coming in too early because the judge might just say, you know what, I'm precluding this report, the person hasn't reached permanency yet. Uh, you know, Let's say another example would be that someone's been approved for surgery. Even if the person hasn't decided whether they want to have it, if a surgical request was just granted or if the judge just made a ruling that surgery is authorized, if you have a permanency report in your pocket, you might as well just toss it in the trash because even if the person never has the surgery, the judge is going to say, no, it's premature. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I would also say take a look at the new definition of maximum medical improvement because it used to be the way they uh, we would uh, – be thwarted by raising that someone was MMI is the claimant would come into court and go, oh, I'm thinking about getting surgery, right? Like the right. classic, I'm a little scared. I just need another month to think about it, right? And we would, you know, we would accommodate that or the judges would accommodate that for a long time. But now the new definition of MMI is that if you're contemplating further treatment, but you're not doing it, you're not accepting it, you haven't scheduled it, it doesn't count. So, you know, that's one way we can kind of neutralize that sort of, uh, someday I'm going to get surgery. I'm just scared to get surgery, which, right, again, I right. think was just a way of delaying the inevitable in those yeah. cases. Okay, let's see. we got a bunch more questions. Um, does New York require all physicians to be certified to treat work-related claims? If yes, does the physician go through any education in order to perform ratings? Okay, so, yes, claimants, physicians, treating physicians, all have to be registered with the board. Absolutely. Right. And the same thing with independent medical physicians. Um, they do have a process where they are registered with the board as well. So, yes, 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 and yes. And it's actually the first question we ask them when we're doing How familiar they are with how to evaluate those claims is a different question, but that's, <laughs> you know, an issue for cross-examination. If they're less familiar, then you might get some uh, interesting concessions out of them. Okay. Um, Okay, here we go. This is a long question. I'm going to read this. If the claimant has an SLU opinion and the low back, for instance, is also established but not a significant injury, what are the chances of getting that SLU closed with a Section 32 to avoid reopening the case for the low back and end up with the classification after already paying for an SLU? All right, so that's sort of the discussion that we had before where you've got a SLU body part. That's really what was treated. Somebody threw the low back in, you know, just kind of tacked it in there on a report. So the question is, what are the chances of getting that closed? Yeah, I mean, it's case by case, right? It's case by case. It really depends on the claimant's interest in settling, you know, kind of as usual. Um, you know, you have some very cautious people who just will refuse to settle because they want to have that medical treatment open. You have others who, as Greg was just mentioning, if, if they never really had 
this severe back injury to begin with, they might look at it as a nice way to bump up their, you know, instead of just getting a schedule loss use award, they can get another whatever is ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars and a lot of them will jump at it. So it's really a case by case thing. Yeah, and I'll tell you uh, well you just said there are some people are more cautious, they don't want to get take it to a thirty two. I think is one of our biggest client frustrations is when we go to our adversary and say, Give me a demand. Right. Give me a thirty two demand. And they go, Oh, what they don't want a 32. I'm like, well, just give me a demand. You know, we just want to right. want to see where they, you know, where they are. Um, so it's a it's a frustrating situation. We can't force someone to 32 a case. Oh, this is a good time. We got a lot of questions here. Um, if a claimant has, this is from Joe. If a claimant has a multiple body part injury claim, for example, right shoulder and a low back, and the low back is just a sprain, but he had surgery on the right shoulder, is this an SLU case or a loss of wage earning capacity claim? Okay, so I think we've kind of talked about this uh, in the answers to the other questions. Right. One, both, or either, right? I mean, right. The right. answer is uh, once the body part's established, they can move for permanency on that body part. Right. A lot of it depends on the path that the claimant and their counsel decide to take. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really is a case-by-case thing. All right. Uh, here's Roxanne. I am finding the judge is affirming Elwek and the degree of disability as one and the same. Is that becoming more common? What could I base my argument on that could impact my claim or do I not have any further recourse? Okay, so I'm a little questioning that. The, the question is a little bit difficult to understand, but basically medical impairment becoming what Elwek is based on. And that's typically what we see, right? Right. Well, in my experience, what the judge will do is figure out medical impairment, and then either tack on or subtract percentage points for LWEC uh, in that sort of strange, ironic, reverse um, scenario where we reward people for less educational achievement. Right. Right. Um, But, however, it appears that there's some new case law where this kind of thing might be called into question in terms of how much, you know, what the rate is. Mm -hmm. Um, So The rate will be the medical impairment and the duration will be everything else. Okay, and we got Brian saying, did you state the degree of disability determines the rate on a claim where ELWEC applies? The guidelines, and he refers to Section 9.3, states that the degree of ELWEC is also the level of disability used to calculate the weekly benefit rate. Correct. Yes, we agree with that. Through the use of vocational specialists, we are finding the ELWEC rate is more often than not less than the disability rate, sometimes to a significant degree. Okay, so again, we're talking about the difference between the medical impairment percentage and the overall disability rate uh, that ends up getting calculated. And that's the part, Brian, that, that we're focusing this conversation on, or that's the interesting part. How that affects exposure, and yes, uh, we are using things like labor market consultants and reemployment and doing everything we possibly can to show that somebody with a very high degree of medical impairment actually has great vocational reemployability, maybe has great transferable skills, and that should reduce the overall exposure. So that's exactly what we're talking about. And in my experience, people with that kind of background usually are fairly proud of it, and they're happy to talk about it at those hearings. So, okay. All right, and do we have an emailed-in question? you want to hand it to me? All right. Okay, my question is twofold. Scenario one, uh, WRI shoulder and back, no indication of back permanency. What do they think WRI stands for? I don't know. WRI. Maybe wrist, shoulder, and back? Okay. C43 received a 40% scheduled loss of use of the shoulder. SLU is paid, and then medical indicating back permanency. In this situation, could the claimant get an SLU and PPD? 
okay, so I think this is the, the nightmare scenario, right? The person gets an SLU on the shoulder, then they go and come back with a new report saying low back permanency, and you've had a case in which the back was already established into the case, and our IME maybe didn't address the back. Yeah, I think you're on the hook and you got to go uh, deal with this back. This is actually why a lot of judges, and I think more so lately, will actually ask the claimant's attorney to put on the SLU stipulation uh, no more disability, no further disability to the neck or the back because they want to avoid the situation as much as we do. Uh, mm -hmm. Judges want to put these cases away and never hear from them again just as much as we do. So judges will ask claimants to put that so that when they come back and say, I have permanency to my back, They'll actually have to allege some kind of worsening. The doctor will have to, to uh, prove that on cross-examination. So that's something we can do even if the judge doesn't ask it. If there's an agreement or if the judge, you know, were, it determines that there's no more disability to the neck and back, that's something we can do is try and make sure that's either in the stipulation or the decision so that the burden will be once again back on the claimant to prove that the disability has worsened and due to that original cop injury. Okay, and then Lee goes on to scenario two. Uh, Greg, reverse of the above, our IME finds medical impairment to the back, but comments that the shoulder has, I'm going to presume they left out the word no, permanency. How is medical impairment evaluated? Uh, again, this is a situation where you've got an LWEC of the back to deal with right. and, you know, throw the shoulder out or argue uh, if the shoulder should be thrown out. Part of the question, once again, being whether the claimant wants a scheduled loss of use award or is seeking to be classified. Um, you know, if you're if the, if the claimant is seeking a scheduled loss of use award and the, and the IME fails to put it on there, you might just ask the judge for a date to come back to court so the IME can, you know, file an addendum. All right. And our last question, this is going to be my favorite question okay. because it involves an injury, which I do not personally believe is real. Greg, I'm trying to ask this question online. I can't do it. This is Linda. Hey, Linda. Um, can you ex assess if RSD is an SLU injury or an LWEC? So RSD is reflex sympathetic dystrophy. I think I said that right. Yeah, or regional pain syndrome. Right. Um, regional fake syndrome, right? It is 99% fake. I have no tolerance for this. Um, I have a claimant that had a open reduction internal fixation to her ankle, and they keep hinting at uh, RSD, but never, no actual diagnosis, and they are not asserting to add RSD to the claim. All right. So good news. Linda, great. It's not part of your case yet. Um, two, um, RSD, if it's real, has some actual real um, uh, things Objective that we can observe, science, right? right? There's yeah. allodynia, so you, your hair falls out in the affected body part, or the skin becomes mottled and discolored, or their hand is cold. You'll see that the body part withers. They'll actually have a lack of sensation. There might be more of them. Um, if you do a Google image search, I mean, it's pretty terrible stuff. And most yeah. of the claimants aren't showing up with these objective signs. Right. I, I mean, I can count on one hand. In 15 years of practicing law and doing nothing but workers' comp and seeing hundreds of cases where RSD is alleged, I can count on one hand how many times people actually came in and you could look at it and go, yep, they probably have it. Yep, because it, it looks, the skin looks different. It looks like something happened there. Right. Most of these are just, you know, throw-ins. They're claimants' attorneys who are being clever and saying, hey, this is an easy one to throw in there. Okay, so the question is really, Greg, is that an SLU or is that an LWEC? And the answer is going to be, how spread is it? Uh, I think that it's a neurological injury to a specific body part. So most of the time, I'm trying to price those as if they were SLUs. I would actually first look at whether or not RSD is established because someone could have an ankle claim, but if unless the judge actually says that RSD is, is an established part of the claim, then I would actually ask the judge not to consider those alleged factors of RSD right. until RSD has been proven. Right. It might just be something the claimant's doctor is putting in there to sort of pad 
their finding of schedule loss of use. But yep. once again, if it's a schedulable injury, that doctor's going to have to allege, regardless of what the factors are, you know, at least 50%. Um, if it's just the one ankle, at least 50%, and then the claimant can look to, to get classified under 15.3v, or sometimes if you know, two extremities are injured, they can look for a classification in that regard. But as far as RSD is concerned, I would look for it to be established, and obviously we would defend against that. But unless it's established, then I wouldn't – personally, I would argue to a judge that those factors should not be considered or they shouldn't be given very much weight when it comes to determining schedule loss of use. Okay. All right. So that's all the time for questions we have today. We're now at 45 minutes in. Um, we do see all the rest of the questions queuing up, and we will respond to those over email. Okay. Um, this has been Tim Kane. I'm Greg Lois. Thank you very much. Uh, next month, we're going to be talking about liens and subrogation with Steve Bedoya. So please join us for that. Uh, again, any email questions you send us, we'll try to get a response right out to you. Okay. Thanks for joining us today, guys.